Bayou City. It's a name that summons images of fishing, paddling, picturesque landscapes, yet as anyone who lives here knows, the bayous are both essential to life in Houston and a source of danger for structures we've built close by to them. Water is fundamentally tied to our way of life in Houston, but with increasingly common cycles of droughts and flooding, it's impossible not to notice that water is increasingly on our minds because of the threat it represents. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Danielle Garcia, the Education and Resource Hub Coordinator at Bayou City Waterkeeper, a local nonprofit dedicated to conservation and water protection through legal action, community science, and policy generation. Danielle Garcia, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. <laughs> I should also say in studio today, we have Miss Reppert's Humanities class at Westbury High School. Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> who are joining us as well, and we'll, we'll have some questions for us later in the hour. Um, so just before we dive in, I actually want to take a moment to recognize that this is Indigenous Peoples Day, and the city of Houston sits on the traditional homelands of the Karankawa, Kwakihelen, Atacapa Ishak, and Sana Nations. And Danielle, I'd really love for you to start us off by just talking a little about Indigenous Peoples Day and what that means to our watershed. Yeah, so today is a very important day to us, to our history, the history of our land, the history of our waters. Today is a day we really get to honor our indigenous people, their elders, their brothers, sisters, children, past, present, and future. And it's a day we really just to, we get to um, center you know, their wisdom and their knowledge, and we get to recognize that their impact on our lives still impacts us today, especially living in the Gulf South. Um, and so I think whenever we're talking about Indigenous Peoples Day, it's really just a day where we can just sit back and we can recognize the contributions to our society, to our everyday lives that Indigenous people make and still make, and they lead us in movements, they ground us in so many things, and so just to hold space for them and talk about the importance of them in our watershed is very important. Absolutely. I mean, both in terms of, we think of caretakers of land and waters for, you know, millennia, but also very much the fact that, uh, you know, indigenous-minded landscapes represent a a vast, you know, vastly outsized portion of of cared-for lands in conservation circles, in uh, care practices around the world. There are increasing movements to really make sure that representation is achieved for indigenous folks who have been doing a kind of environmental protection work for a long, long time. For centuries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least. <laughs> Minimum, yeah. Yeah. Um, so good. Thank you so much for, for starting us off with that. Um, and then I, can you just tell us a little about Bayou City Waterkeeper for those who aren't familiar with it? Yeah. So Bayou City Waterkeeper is a water justice organization based in the Houston region. We're actually based in the lower Galveston Bay watershed, um, which that region entails just south of Huntsville all the way down to Galveston, goes out towards Jefferson County, towards East Texas, and goes out to Brazoria County. So it's a pretty big range that, you know, we take pride in protecting the waters um, in this region. And 
At Bayou City Waterkeeper, we focus a lot on legal advocacy, community science, um, community organizing to build community power. Um, but I think like one of the most important things we do is like we really center community justice and equity in everything that we do. So even though we do talk about conservation, we do make space for environmental justice as well. And mm-hmm. EJ leading conservation spaces, um, which is so important here in Houston. Um, at Bayou City Waterkeeper, we have a lot of amazing new staff members that come from so many different backgrounds, and it's just a space where we come together and just talk about our waters and talk about everything that needs to be done to protect them, whether it's water quality, wetland conservation, um, or just making space for a just climate transition, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, transitioning away from just transitioning um, a little, uh, transitioning away from oil and gas usage um, and focusing more on what it means to be a green nation and a, have a clean um, source of energy and clean. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling. <laughs> well, no, 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 yeah. that was great. <laughs> just let you go. <laughs> no. No, to move to, to cleaner futures, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I, I want to pause for just a second because we've said watershed twice now. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you can explain to us what a watershed is because I don't know that that's actually something we all just intuitively know. Yeah, so watershed is a geographical region in which the water flows um, and – Houston, we notice we have a lot of headwaters, and they lead down to our bay waters. Mm. Um, and so watershed is just basically providing the path for water to trickle down to our coastline. So that's the whole network of, of moving waters, connected waters that represent that area. Right, exactly. Great. Yeah. And then I, I just want to highlight, you, you did mention, you know, the, the kind of astronomical growth that Bayou City Waterkeeper has yeah. been going through. I'll say I landed in Houston a, a little over two years ago and was first introduced to Bayou City Waterkeeper when there were three full-time employees, I believe, and you now have... A, Eleven. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really a testament to, to the really incredible work that the Bayou City Waterkeeper has been doing over the last few years just to see how remarkably quickly you, you've grown quite a bit and how much you're taking on for what is still a, a very small organization. Yeah. And, you know, like we're still learning every day. We're learning more about each other, about what's needed for a region. We're able to come together from so many different backgrounds and just have a collective vision of the future that really centers community. And I think that's the most important part of of our whole work is our staff really takes pride in centering community. Um, and, you know, sometimes in Houston, I feel like we get so disconnected to what our community is and what that actually means. But, you know, to us, it's everything around us. It's the space around us. It's where we go to eat. It's the people we interact with every day. It's the people in this room who are joining us from Westbury High School. I hope I said that right. <laughs> um And it's just really just making space for, you know, what are their priorities? What is the reason why we are all here? We're here to do better by each other and build a community. Um, and something, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's and, and hearing that the focus on that kind of, I know, I know many of your projects have been very neighborhood by neighborhood approaches. It's one of the things that that difficulty of, you know, understanding community at the Houston scale is something that I think planners in particular think a lot about with, it's a big city, yeah, <laughs> both in terms of number of people and also geographic area. And so it's, it's tricky to, to really remember that. And yet, 
that community by community approach, that thinking neighborhood by neighborhood is often a really important way that we actually connect on the ground and think about what does this neighborhood actually need. Right. Um, so you talked a little about environmental justice, and I've heard you talk before about water justice. And I, I you know, we, we've talked about environmental justice on the program multiple times. You can go back and listen to, to previous episodes yeah. if, you want the, if you want the recap on, on EJ work. Um, but, you know, when we think of this as a justice issue and water justice specifically, can you talk about how you think of water justice and what that means, both in your work in Biocity Waterkeeper, but just more broadly? Yeah. So in living in Houston, we are so connected to water. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our connections to water are filled with a lot of trauma, a lot of remorse, a lot of remembering the situations, the floods, the hurricanes. We have a disaster mindset. Yeah. We do. But at the same time, we also have this mindset where we really see the beauty in our region. Mm-hmm. We see the diversity and not only the diversity among people, but the diversity among landscapes. Mm-hmm. And that's really where water plays into this is the fact of we have so many different types of bodies of waters here you have lakes rivers wetlands bayous and all these feed into the uh to galveston bay and eventually to our gulf coast so it's just being able to acknowledge the path of water in our region and how everything is so interconnected to one another and how what we do in north houston affects us down in galveston you know and Really, water justice is just creating space for water in the in the topic of climate justice and environmental justice. But in Houston, I really want to acknowledge is that we really have to think with the view of water. We have to view water as as something that's not just a commodity. It's not just a resource. Water is a living thing. Water is something that keeps us going. It keeps Mm -hmm. us thriving. And to be able to protect that in our Houston region means so much because our city is ruled by water. Um, Unfortunately, it gets overshadowed by by oil and gas and industry. Um, But it's water justice is really just making space for the path of water in our region. And and who's affected by the traumas of water and trying to really have a justice and equity mindset and like really rerouting these traumas and really trying to do everything we can to mitigate the flooding, to mitigate our negative relationship with water. Um, well, and I think that's something that, you know, both the, that idea of justice as water is bigger than us. You know, we just talk about neighborhoods and, you know, what happens in one neighborhood absolutely has impacts and effects in other neighborhoods because these watersheds do, you know, they don't respect neighborhood boundaries. Right. (laughs) The water has been there a lot longer than we have and the water, you know, exists on its own. And Mm -hmm. so that idea that, you know, what happens exactly as you said on the north side impacts the south, west and east, you know, these are really important considerations about thinking of of holistic approaches to, to water management and health. Yeah. And like just even honoring indigenous people day um you know indigenous people you know water is something that you know is preyed upon it is you know we we thank our spirits for it every day it's something that really grounds us but one thing i really hold on to with in terms of indigenous knowledge is viewing water as a relative so Mm -hmm. it's like how do you act whenever 
your great aunt or your great tias in the room, you know, you act right. You, you sit up straight, you talk correctly, you speak about you speak about them in the correct way. And that's how I view water. We have to view it as a relative. And that's exactly what indigenous people have been doing for a long time. Um, well, and it speaks to a matter of respect, right? That mm-hmm. it's, we, we have far less control over water than, than we like to think we do. Right. <laughs> um, and it's not something that is, that is, easily uh, reconfigured. You know, we, we talked last week about environmental histories and thinking of Houston as a place, right? The reason Houston exists where it does is the Bayou Network. Literally, yeah. The reason we are here is because of our historical connection to water, but also like any place that attempts to control those waterways, you know, this is remarkably difficult and remarkably complex and has unintended consequences and you know being from new orleans i like to go to the poster child of the mississippi river and we've spent a century on the the largest engineering process in you know world history and what have we done we've destroyed louisiana yeah (laughs) we've literally destroyed the coast of louisiana as a direct result of a levee project that extends an entire riverway. Yeah, and wasn't that the project that also made contributions to Katrina worse? Oh, you see, we're going to go down too too many rabbit holes here (laughs) if you get me on that. But yes, the the federal levee failures are are certainly, uh, that is a a New Orleans-specific issue, kind of the the Mississippi itself, uh, you know, this large network of levees that have refused to allow for silt creation along the, uh, the bayous in the southern Louisiana area has meant that coastal erosion i mean within my lifetime right there's not been a time that i grew up and didn't hear psas on the news every week of every hour louisiana loses a football field of land right um, which is really astounding yeah (laughs) pause to think about it all to highlight you know moving us back into houston we go into to many of these large projects with the idea and the hope that okay we can we can solve this we can address this we can immediately remedy it and these these movings of water, right? We think actually too of there was a great piece in the New York Times several years back uh, after Hurricane Ida when Ida decimated you know the coast of Louisiana, but actually killed a lot more people in the Northeast. Right. And yeah. that was extended flooding that happened out throughout the Northeast region. And you know some some really wonderful scholars who went back and said you can map historically these are riverways and flood paths that we have paved over that we have you know dammed up that we have whatever we've done put concrete over you know yeah and the water just returned the exactly. water just goes back to where the water wants to be yeah and I always say it's because the water remembers <laughs> the water is going to remember where it goes and I mean this is you know this is certainly indigenous knowledge this also brings us into like Tony Morrison has great quotes about the the memory of water but it's it's interesting to see how different communities and people around the world have have embodied that idea and and how we we often chafe at it as a okay this is you know this is too whatever for us and it's like actually thinking with a little more reverence for for the power of water and for the shape of water right and how it shapes us right is really really critical in any of these kind of large-scale environmental projects because it has really direct consequences on on how we think about building. Yeah, and I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah, and I'm I'm even thinking of like projects that really don't really account for the movement of water, mm. make space for water. And as a planner, um, you know, living in Houston, being a planner is very industrialized. It's very what's going on here with oil and gas and there's not a lot of opportunities to really focus on the natural environment as a planner. I'm saying this only because 
it's it's so dominated our region the narratives of our region dominate the work that we do and as a planner we're designing the narratives that take place and so if we're really stepping back to think about the environment think about water specifically in Houston if we plan with the view of water I'm willing to bet we're going to see a lot of things willing to mitigate itself however it's just you know our narratives in Houston don't involve water. If they do, they involve the trauma of water and nothing else. Um, well, and I want to bring us to, to something that I think is really important in Bayou City Waterkeeper's work. And I, and I want to get us into a minute into some of the, the really tangible things you're working on. Um, but first, you know, I, since, since, since I've been working with Bayou City Waterkeepers since I've known about your work, uh, one of the things, I will say, Ayanna Gillibet-McLeod, phenomenal artist who happens to be your executive director. Yes, she's amazing. Ayanna <laughs> is, yeah, she's a lovely person. Um, and Ayana really, you know, I love the way that she talks about the work that the Bayou City Waterkeeper aims to achieve as both collective visioning, really thinking about community-led, what do we want to move towards, what are the solutions we need to find, but also this kind of cultural change. Right. And I think some of what we're discussing right now, you know, maybe feels further afield of what some of the other environmental conversations we've had are. But a lot of that's really tied directly to the importance of thinking of culture as a force in shaping where we live, how we live, how we think about the environment Mm -hmm. more broadly, and the really tangible impacts that has on how we think about solutions, as how we think about what are even challenges. Is this a challenge or is this actually something that we need to reframe as a condition. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the cultural aspect is so important of the work that we do because we really work to honor every culture possible and every culture has a relationship with water in some way or another. Um, And even just thinking about the diversity of Houston and how people come from all over. I came from Central Texas. You came from New Orleans. I have friends who came from Nigeria. I have friends who came from the Middle East. It's a city of immigrants, absolutely. Exactly, and it's a place where we all come together, um, and we really respect each other's culture, and we honor, we make space for each other. And that's a big part of the work that we do. You're absolutely right, because we can't really move past our histories move past our traumas without honoring and respecting the cultures and the differences of people. Um, so yeah, it's something I really value at Bayou City Waterkeeper. All right. So speaking of Bayou City Waterkeeper and things that we value, (laughs) what, can you tell me some of the the tangible projects you've been working on? Um, and I know I, I asked because, the organization works on a lot of different things right. and from a lot of different perspectives, a lot of it's legal work and really thinking about conservation as legal action. Mm-hmm. Um, there've been some fantastic, uh, measures that have been enforced because of actions by Bayou city, but, but maybe you can target us towards what are some of the, the largest priority areas and concerns that Bayou city Waterkeeper sees right now? Well, I would say for me personally, as like education and resource hub, what I'm seeing is just making space for community education Mm. and making space to build power with community education. Um, And that's something I'm really working towards um, building out. Um, However, we're still at the very beginning phases (laughs) of our education journey. But in doing so, we do go out in the community a lot. We give presentations on a lot of different critical areas and one of those is wetland protection and um 
uh, martial art community science manager. She does an amazing amazing job at the way she talks about wetlands. Um, and so that's one of our priority areas right now. Can you now. channel a little of martial now <laughs> and tell us a little <laughs> about what are wetlands and why they're significant in the area? Yeah, so wetlands are basically like our natural floodplains. Mm-hmm. Um at Bayou City Waterkeeper, we've actually identified five critical wetland areas. Um, so if you go on our website and go to wetlands, you will see the five, five critical wetlands map. Um, but this research came from John Jacob, who is a Texas A&M uh, researcher who really was, um, you know, like trying to really focus on like the impact of wetlands and what it means for the Houston region. And our region is basically a giant wetland, right, yeah. in itself. Um, and so with that, we, you know, wetlands provide us a lot of protection. They provide us flood protections from hurricanes. But then on top of that, they also mitigate our pollution and our water. They work as carbon capturing units um, to help mitigate climate change. And so just thinking about the importance of wetlands, it you know, it's it's going back to honoring nature and um, really honoring the power that nature has to work itself out if we give it the chance. But the issue is, is in Houston, we're so focused on developing that we really develop over these critical areas. And that's one of the critical pieces that Bayou City Waterkeeper does is we push for uh, legal action and trying to make sure everyone has the right permitting and everyone is, you know, just following the rules when it comes to development because the wet developing over wetlands is going to be something that could make or break us in the future. And I mean, I, I think both, you know, the, the numerous benefits that you listed out there are that there's water absorption and protection, that there's, you know, hurricane protection that these wetland areas can often supply. Um, you know, if we go and look at those critical wetlands that we also might think of as kind of endangered wetlands, that they're mm-hmm. most at the risk of, of being either developed on or that are, you know, being removed for various reasons. Um, but another thing that's really important to think about, right, is, as we think about development, these are kind of fundamentally unsafe areas to build right, on. Exactly. You know, it's it's not just an issue of, oh, this is doing all this important work for us, which is really critical on right. its own, but it's also quite dangerous to be building homes and businesses directly on an area we know is flood prone. Right. Yeah. And there's a, we, we're currently monitoring like a lot of developments, but we're really seeing them being built in our critical wetland areas, um, going out towards the suburbs, going towards Waller County, going towards Lake Houston, Crosby area. There's a lot of like housing developments out there that are being built on wetlands. And the way we the way we go and examine that is uh, we do wetland visits um, and we I'm sorry I'm stumbling <laughs> no no you're good um, but whenever we do these visits we really um, we really take the time to see what's around we identify the types of uh, the ecological diversity that's there. And we look for indicators of this being a wetland. Um, they test the soil. They'll look at the pockets, the air pockets in the soil. Um, and these are all things that tell us, like, okay, this is a floodplain. And so I feel like if development was to really look at the environmental considerations, then we wouldn't ha- be having as many housing neighborhoods built in these flood areas. And that's like the critical piece is Houston's going to keep developing and developing 
over our natural environment that's set to protect us and that has been protecting us well and it makes us think about the, the different strategies for development right and right. we actually have the uh, the city of houston's uh, chief development officer coming on in a few weeks to talk about development but there's many ways of development and i don't think you know the idea is like oh we shouldn't be building like we can move into to housing and why that actually is an environmental issue as well yeah. and how these two things are very connected it's thinking about different kinds of housing it's thinking about you know infill housing there's there's lots of approaches Mm-hmm. to continue developing, right, right, that don't necessarily require us to build on an area that we know is fundamentally at risk. Yeah. And as you had hinted at earlier, right, that when we build on those areas that are at risk, it's not just at risk for those who are living there now. It actually damages and makes it more likely that increased flood events will happen for everyone else in the area. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, just just looking at you know, where our wetlands are located right now is where we're seeing a lot of growth. And I don't know, I'm I'm just constantly thinking about, like, what if these areas are gone? Like, we have a group of high school students here, and it's like, what if you, like, in the future, don't get to really have your experience of knowing the wetlands or knowing your natural environment because we're constantly building over them? And this is the space where we really educate ourselves and we educate others to be able to continue the this fight you know and this movement in houston um Terrific. So I, I wanted to ask you as well, because I, I do know uh, there have been a series of um, recent pushes you've been making that Bayou City Waterkeepers have been putting out around the Ike Dyke. And I think the Ike Dyke is probably familiar to most folks, at least vaguely by name. But can you tell us what the Ike Dyke is and what's going on, why we should be paying attention to it? Yeah, so the Ike Dyke is a shorthand name for, I believe, the coastal Texas feasibilities that it's blanking right now um (laughs) it's a very lengthy it's a very (laughs) long name um it's a project that's currently being developed by the u.s army corps of engineer um and also the gulf coast protection district um the funding just got raised so originally the funding for this project was 31 billion dollars it got raised to 57 billion i believe as of last week or a week two weeks ago um but this project really has several components um so the first component is a gate structure stretching across the mouth of galveston bay the second component is a 17 foot wall uh, to enclose parts of the city of galveston Um, And the third part is a 43-mile stretch of double-layered sand dunes along Bolivar Peninsula and Galveston Island. Um, And so the issue, there's so many issues with this project, Um, but one of the biggest things is that this project isn't going to be completed for another 20 years. And we need climate protection now. We need flood protection now. So it's like if we have a $57 billion plot a pot of money, I'm sorry, Um, what can we do with that money instead? And this project, it really, I think they tried to center nature-based solutions. However, all we really got from it was the sand dune um, component of it. Um, So that's something that we're doing at Bayou City Waterkeeper is, um, you know, advocating for this funding to have to go to more flood protections, to go to more nature-based solutions. And Can you tell us what you mean by nature-based solutions? Yeah, so nature-based solutions is 
a term that we use to define green infrastructure, and that just means like the natural infrastructure around us. How I said, like our wetlands protect us, that's mm-hmm. the form of natural infrastructure. So whenever I'm talking about this project doesn't center nature-based solutions, it's not centering nature in the way that we know it can resolve itself, mm-hmm. like in you know, help resolve itself in a way. Um, And whenever we're talking about green infrastructure and nature-based solutions, a lot of it, I feel, gets hidden behind, like, you know, giant concrete projects, giant engineered projects, which is what we're seeing here with the Ike Dyke. However, nature-based solutions could be simply just letting an area grow to catch water. And it, it doesn't require $57 billion of concrete and engineering and all these things when we could just let the land be what it is and let let it help itself, you know? Um, I think one of the things to highlight as well is the Ike Dyke, which, um, you know, Jim Blackburn and some folks at the Speed Center have pointed out quite a bit, is, is really trying to raise protection standards to meet Ike, <laughs> yeah. which for, for those with, with longer memories uh, was not – it really uh, in the in the last you know major storm that we faced um and so i mean certainly one of the concerns around it is that just the protection standard actually isn't high enough for the kind of storms we're continually meeting now yeah and i agree and i think this project honestly doesn't provide a lot of protections for a community i think it really i've my personal opinion i believe this project is the epitome of profit over people mm. only because these structures that they building that they're building are being built to help mitigate the impacts of, sur- of storm surge and flooding for industrial areas, mm. which is important. But in 20 years, shouldn't we be moving away from that anyway? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be moving away from, you know, oil and gas and all these uh, chemical productions and all these things that really make Houston an unsafe city to, to live? Um, so that's like, one of my personal like issues with this uh, project is that, you know, it really doesn't center community at all. So something we've been trying to do at Bayou City Waterkeeper is trying to hold space and workshops for people to come in and to be able to tell us their concerns with the project and be able to help uh, identify priorities and what's important for this project that we could potentially take back to the Gulf Coast Protection District, who's also responsible for this project in addition to the Army Corps. So really trying to serve as that connective voice between community concerns around this project and larger government entities that are really planning out what those protection areas need to look like and exist as. Right, exactly. Yeah, and um, I work with the Surge Forward Coalition. It's mm. something that Bayou City Waterkeeper is a part of. But the Surge, well, Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. so the Surge Forward Coalition is a coalition of activists, organizations, artists who come together, who are just raising awareness about this project, um, who are basically just trying to envision an alternative to the Ike Dyke. Um, so it's something I'm very, really, I'm really proud to be a part of, and it's, it's something that we are, you know, just, just trying to work towards. We're trying to build a better alternative rather than this $57 billion engineering solution, quote, air quote solution, that isn't going to protect us today, tomorrow, and it might not even protect us in 20 years. Um, and also this... This whole project is set to protect us against Category 3 storms, and 
as we've seen in Houston and in the Gulf Coast in general, is we have way stronger storms under Category 3. So there's just... There's a lot of room for improvement on this project, and that's something we're really trying to, you know, amplify and really trying to identify who are our community members um, most impacted by this. And, you know, of course, I'm thinking of the ship channel communities mm-hmm. who are impacted by storm surge the most mm-hmm. um, and really just making space you know, for everyone to be in the room and to be able to have a say in what's going on with this. So one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I know it's another major kind of Bayou City Waterkeeper project, is thinking about wastewater mm-hmm. um, and wastewater overflow in particular right. around the city. And so can you talk some about what these concerns are? And I, I also wanted to highlight kind of these three issues to show just the range of water-adjacent concerns and problems that we're having in the city and, and how big a, a concept right. water is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so our... Wastewater work, we call it our clean water work, Uh, (laughs) um, but our wastewater work is really looking at the components of what's going on within our wastewater systems um, and being able to mitigate the over-exhaustion of them whenever it floods in Houston. And we have... um, And we see our infrastructure failing. One of the things that fails us is our wastewater systems. And our wastewater systems will actually overflow and back up into our communities, into our parks, um, into our houses, into people's laundry rooms, et cetera, Mm -hmm. bathtubs. And so it's a really big issue. So um, Kristen Schlimmer, our legal director, um, she she was responsible for helping – Bayou City Waterkeepers sue the city of Houston on these wastewater overflows um, happening um, within the city. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever we're talking about wastewater, we were able to secure the wastewater consent decree for the city of Houston. Um, I say we as Bayou City Waterkeeper, (laughs) by the way. Yes, the royal we. And so with the wastewater consent decree, I believe it puts $2 billion of funding into public wastewater systems over the next 15 years, which is so critical, so important. Mm -hmm. Um, But in addition to this, one step that we're trying to take right now is we're actually trying to mitigate the impacts on the private side of the sewer lines. So on a sewer line, there's the public line that connects to the main line which is where the consent decrees funding goes to is the main side. However, there's a gap in repairs being made on the private side, and those repairs can cost anywhere from $10,000 to $15,000. And so one of the things we're working towards is to be able to have a supplemental environmental project um, from these fines and be able to, um, you know, take take those fines – and put it towards something, and the thing we're going to be putting it towards, hopefully, is um, mitigating the private sewer line. And a lot of our EJ communities, environmental justice communities, Mm -hmm. 
frontline communities here in Houston are the ones who are having to experience the wastewater overflows at unreasonable rates. Um, Which is this pattern we continually right. see, that those folks who are you know most at risk are those that are also most impacted. Right, exactly. All right, so we have these great high schoolers in the room. So I'm going to turn it over to them for a moment and have anybody who wants to come forward with a question come up and, uh, and jump in, because I'd love to, to give them the opportunity to chat with you some. Yeah. So my name is Alexander, and my question is, do the Bayou City waterkeepers even lead protests against companies that are polluting our water? So we don't actually lead protests um, against companies right now, but what we do is we help bring community together to identify their priorities and if leading a protest is what they want to do then hopefully in the future we can make space for it so right now indirectly no but we have been supporting um, a lot of protests that have been going on um, in the Houston region Um, and I'm saying this we as in I I've gone to a couple of protests in the past Um, but yeah great thank you my name is Angie Soto, and my question is, what inspired you to start this program? Um, well, I can't really speak to what inspired me to start, because I wasn't the one who started uh, Bayou City Waterkeeper. That was John Jacob. Um, but I can speak to what inspires me to keep going is the necessity for the environment. You know, the environment is a very natural, living thing, Um It's something that people tend to forget about. People see it as a commodity, as, oh, we don't really need to care for it. It's not really that important. But our environment is everything around us, right? And like I was saying, our community is everything around us, so is our environment. They're hand in hand. And so something that keeps me going, something that inspires me to keep going is just the fact of, you know, in Houston, there's a lot of community members that have experienced these issues at disproportionate rates and hearing their stories and hearing the issues that they go through and being able to work towards resolutions for them is something that really grounds me and inspires me personally. Great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. My name is Miriam. Uh, I'm interested in the environment, but I don't really know what to do in order to help it. Oh, good question. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Thank you so much. Um, I would say that me and you will definitely talk after. (laughs) We'll talk after. Um, But there's a lot of room right now um, for youth in the environmental movement happening. Um, There's organizations like COCO and Fifth Ward who work with youth around climate issues. There's I believe Houston Youth Climate Strike, I hope Mm -hmm. I'm saying that correctly. Um, So there's a couple spaces for people in your age group to plug in. Um, And but one thing I want to hold on is that, you know, you necessarily don't have to plug into these spaces. It's a lot to be in high school, right? You have a lot of things going on. I'm (laughs) sure y'all play sports, y'all do clubs, you know, it's a lot to you know, really get involved sometimes. But what you can do is, you know, I would say just to start off, just appreciate the environment around you. Go to go to your uh, bayou, go to your closest bayous, go to your closest waterways, your green spaces, and just enjoy it and really see the beauty in it. Because I think that will ignite the passion to what you can do next. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thank you. <laughs> 
Hello, my name is Diana Mosqueda. Um, the Romans and Mayan, Mayans, if I'm saying that right, caught rain water in big ditches. Can we do something like that for use on farms? For farms? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, I'm so happy you brought up farming and agriculture. <laughs> farming is so important, right? And it's something that, you know, there are a lot of different projects that we can do. We can help with groundwater um, absorption. There's a lot of different mm-hmm. ways we could plug into these spaces. Um, I think water retention in general, you know, certainly there are large reservoirs like you're hinting at with Mayans and Romans and communities throughout history. Um, But, you know, something really tangible, actually, that can be done is is rain barrels, right? For your, certainly for a farm, but really for your own backyard. Thinking about water runoff, um, especially as we enter these kind of drought to flood cycles. Mm -hmm. um, The idea that we can store our own water and then we can actually collect it and use it for our yards. Right. um, That thinking of different strategies to water retention, certainly on an agricultural level, becomes possible and doable and is important in many farming areas already, but also at the local level, (laughs) the individual level, that's something that actually, you know, certain committee members around the city have been really pushing for is trying to, to handle individual property owners, water management in different ways. Thank you. (laughs) That was a really big question. It is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Hello. My name is Alan Clark. Um, my question for you today is what is the best way to advertise for cleaner water in our city and state? To advertise? I, I'm I'm going to change your question a little <laughs> bit. But I'm going to say advocate. Is that okay? Okay. So I think one way we can really advocate for the water around us is just creating space for it in our everyday life. Um, like I was saying, um, you know, going out into our natural environment, going out into the bayous, you know, if you're able to make a difference in those moments, I would say go for it. If you're able to pick up, you know, some trash, some something like that, something that's easy for you on a personal level is a way that we can help advocate and help get towards cleaner water in Houston. Um, But I would say at the larger scale, what we can do really is support each other, support our communities, um, and be able to understand our complex relationship with water in Houston and be able to work towards the solutions of community empowerment, community education around water. And those are very great ways that we can help advocate and teach others about the importance of water in our city. So I hope that answered your question. These are fantastic questions. My name is Allison, and the question I have is, is it true that the city of Houston is sinking due to overpopulation and use of water in the ground? (laughs) You dive into that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm going to say louder. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Houston, as I was saying, Houston is a giant floodplain, right? It's dominated by water. So what happens is our ground gets softer and softer, and that sinking is what we call subsidence. So our towns, our cities start to subside, and they start to get lower. And as we build highways, and as we, um, I'm sorry, as we build highways, um, and as we have all these developments, have development around oil and gas, it really makes the subsidence and the sinking issue much worse. Um, 
So, yeah, so unfortunately it is true, but there are things we can do to mitigate our subsidence. I'm also, I'm going to push back ever so slightly at your question and say maybe a yes and. Um, I would steer you away from overpopulation. Um, Overpopulation as an idea is often kind of heralded as here's all of our problems, it's too many people. And that's really not accurate. Houston's actually small (laughs) by global city standards. It is vast in geographic standards. This is not an overpopulation issue. This is a really poor allocation of resources and land use issue. Um, Thinking that we can continually expand and continually consume and utilize unchecked, that's an issue. But that's not an issue that's unique to Houston. It's not an issue that is determined by how much our population is. It's a series of choices that we've made or that we haven't made. Sometimes it's about the choices that have not been made and to prioritize exactly what you've been talking about, the significance of water, the significance of land, treating these as good common resources that must be protected. I think we could absolutely have double or triple the population of Houston and have far fewer issues (laughs) if we change the way that we we were thinking about how we maintain and how we build and how we protect communities. Um, and so I, I hear overpopulation a lot, and I understand why it's a concern for people, but I also really want us to, to think about different examples around the world, different examples around the country of places that are, are actually doing a much better job of resource management than we are really throughout the United States um, with far greater population densities, with far greater populations in areas. And really, you know, the, the good side of that is they show us really great models. They show us really great examples of things that we could emulate and things that we can learn from so that these issues that we're creating are relieved or reduced or stopped to be issues altogether. Um, But yeah, I mean, the society issue throughout town is complex and big and has many different causes. Especially in Baytown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's different pockets of town, too. You can see Mm -hmm. where it's hitting different impacts, and that's, yeah, thank you. That's a really major concern and worry and something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um. Hi, my name is Elizabeth, and I was wondering if you guys, uh, the Bayou City, had any volunteer opportunities for like high schoolers like me. What a great question! <laughs> yeah, that's such a great question. So, unfortunately, as of at this very moment, we do not. However, what we are, <laughs> unfortunately, um, but what we are doing is we are building some of our wetland programs to be able to take volunteers out into our wetlands, and so. In 2024, early 2024, we're going to start having a lot more opportunities for people to plug in. Um, And we will get your contact info so we can plug you in, okay? (laughs) And as Danielle mentioned, um, you know, that's really... There's all these great different organizations in town that work around youth and that have opportunities. So look around. Also, think about your own high school. You know, your high school environmental clubs or start an environmental club are a really great place to to jump off. So thank you so much for that. Yes. Love to see these youth activists. Oh, my God. This class is incredible. Yeah. I'm sorry. We're going to have to start moving on. So, Danielle, I want to give you... um, I, no. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you just the last word here about anything that you want to get off your um, off your mind that you you know want to share with us or ways that we can get involved, ways that we can be active. Yeah. So first and foremost, please, you know, please follow us on social media. Please sign up for our email list if you're interested in clean water work. We could get you connected. Wetland work, just climate transition work. Um, 
you know, just feel free to reach out to us. Um, anything you need, any issues you're seeing, any water pollution thing you need to report, you know, we're always there for y'all. Um, and I would say, like, another thing, just highlighting that our election is coming up, BCWK is nonprofit 501c3, so we don't endorse candidates. But what I can say is if you have not registered to vote, please go register to vote. Tomorrow is the last day to register to vote. Um, and so this could be speaking to our 18-year-old high schoolers in the room. This could be speaking to our people who are new to Houston who just moved here. Um, there's ways to register to vote. Um, and so... Yeah. Absolutely. Getting engaged at the political level, the local political level is, is so, so important to these so issues and, and for any issues that we're worried about. We need so. the right people to represent <laughs> us. Um, so important. So thank you again. All right, Danielle, it's been so great talking with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of the wonderful work that Bayou City Waterkeeper has been up to. Um, so here at Gulf Streams, we love getting to talk with leading experts and advocates for extended conversations about big ideas and major challenges facing Houston. Uh, we want to give you a wider range of perspectives, though, so we're also hosting content week to week um, that's going to give you a broader range of targeted issues in the region and beyond from our two student researchers who are doing really outstanding work, uh, bringing short stories and interviews. And in the next few weeks, you're going to hear over two different topics kind of on rotation. Sienna Yen is going to continue her continuing our series on urban planning and development around Houston, and Jaden Bray Boyce will deliver a series of stories on wildfires. And so this week, to kick us off with Jaden's series, uh, she'll be introducing her new project. Good afternoon, everyone. Today, I'm thrilled to share that in the upcoming weeks, I have the pleasure of talking to y'all about wildfires. Through this mini-series, I'll take you along a journey as we speak to Texans who work with fire management, diplomats, and environmental sciences professors. Through this series, I hope to shed light on the ecological and societal impacts of wildfires, clear some of the misconceptions, and ultimately provide a better understanding of what wildfires and controlled burns really are. So with that, I happily introduce you to Burning Questions, an investigation into the world of wildfires. So now imagine this. The world is ablaze, not with chaos or destruction, but with the natural force of wildfires. These formidable phenomena have captivated humanity's attention for centuries, as they sweep across vast landscapes consuming everything in their path. Yet beneath the surface of these blazing infernos lies a world of complexity, intrigue, and surprisingly hope. Wildfires are not just isolated events, they are a fundamental part of our planet's history. Here on our soil for many millennia, the Native Americans conducted controlled burns. An article published by the National Park Service informs us that cultural burning refers to the indigenous practice of the intentional lighting of smaller controlled fires to provide a desired cultural service, such as promoting the health of vegetation and animals that provide food, clothing, ceremonial items, and more. According to Frank Canoa Lake, a research ecologist with the United States Department of Agriculture Forest Service, a wildland firefighter of Carrick descent, states, Cultural burning links back to the tribal philosophy of fire as medicine. When you prescribe it, you're getting the right dose to maintain an abundance of productivity of all ecosystem services to support the ecology in your culture. So from the ancient forests of North America to the sprawling savannas of Africa, wildfires have shaped ecosystems, influenced landscapes, and left their unfading marks on human societies. 
But what lies beyond the immediate image of destruction and devastation? Why do these fires occur and what can we learn from them? During our time together, we're going to explore the reasons behind the importance of wildfires and the multifaceted aspects that make wildfires a unique and essential topic of discussion. To truly understand the significance of learning about wildfires, we must first recognize the sheer power and unpredictability of these natural disasters. Wildfires can erupt seemingly out of nowhere, driven by a combination of factors such as dry weather, high winds, and human activity. They transform serene landscapes into essentially fiery whirlpools, threatening lives, property, and the environment. With the unpredictability of wildfires, their potential capacity for devastation cannot be misjudged. In the aftermath of these natural disasters, there are irrevocable consequences to many, including the destruction of homes and surrounding ecosystems. Accordingly, it becomes imperative that we gain a deeper understanding of the actual circumstances at hand. More often than not, there is a lack of understanding when it comes to our environment. While it may seem frightening, practices such as controlled burnings are actually vital for the health of the environment. For instance, having controlled burns is one of the leading ways we aim to reduce the likelihood of catastrophic wildfires. Additionally, there are species that actually require fire to grow. Plants like buckbrush have seeds encased in a tough outer shell that requires the fire to ultimately crack them open, allowing the seeds to spread. Controlled burns also help to eliminate dead leaves and tree branches, reducing the population of insects and destroy invasive species, as well as removing other various forms of debris and harmful species littering the forest floor. Wildfires are a global issue. From the Amazon rainforest to the Australian savanna, wildfires affect regions across the world. They are influenced by climate change, land management practices, and human activity. By dedicating some much-needed time and attention to this topic, we can foster a global perspective, highlighting the interconnectedness of these events and the need for international collaboration in addressing them. Wildfires also have vast economic implications for nations. The U.S. spent nearly $4.4 billion fighting against wildfires in the year 2021 alone. For smaller countries, spending over $4 billion on wildfires might seem unfeasible. Further, many nations thrive on tourism as a large portion of their annual GDP. However, with an increase in both scale and intensity of these devastating natural disasters, it's probable that areas not already experiencing a decline in tourism will soon due to the destruction of those regions. Kicking science and geography to the curb for a moment, wildfires allow us to shed light on the awe-inspiring stories of human resilience, courage, and community. We can see the bravery of firefighters who risk their lives, survivors who rebuild from the ashes, and communities that come together in the face of adversity. Through these experiences, we can see the undeniable and unbreakable bond of the human spirit during these difficult times. As we embark on this journey together, exploring the world of wildfires, where destruction and renewal, danger and courage, and devastation and hope coexist in a delicate balance, I implore you to stay curious about a topic that is so dire, yet only receives media coverage when it's too late to take preventative measures. So with that, I hope this topic ignites a new passion for you regarding learning about the intricacies of wildfires. In the upcoming weeks, I'll be speaking with Wade Powell, a Texas wildland fire management specialist. We'll be covering the topic of controlled burns. This is something you won't want to miss, so stay tuned. And with that, I wish you all a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Jaden. Up next time on Gulf Streams, the Port of Houston expansion, also known as Project 11. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. 
Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Tordowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Brayboyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.